Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Jethro Bins. Jethro is the co-founder and director of Squash Skills, an online squash coaching resource. Jethro, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thanks very much for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure having you, Jethro. Now, as I say, the purpose of this podcast series is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I would like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader means to you, because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me, uh, a leader is somebody that ultimately in- inspires loyalty, uh, so whether that be amongst amongst their staff or, or amongst customers, it's somebody that is is driving driving something forward and and inspiring people to to follow them to be on the journey with them um you know whether that's parting with with money and becoming a customer or or working within an organization okay and um if we were to talk about your own leadership style jethro how would you describe that would you describe that as being very much people orientated as you just indicated there yeah i think so Uh, i'm looking to to empower my team and my employees, um, I want I want to give them the opportunity to to carve their own path. So I'm, I'm there to encourage, uh, to coach them, to coach them through. I don't want to be the one dictating and, and mm. telling them what they should be should be doing. I want to you know them to feel like they uh, they're trusted to make their own decisions uh, ultimately. Absolutely. And um, as well as, of course, coaching um, in the uh, squash world, you come from very much um, a squash sporting background, don't you, Jethro, having been a former Welsh number one and a former world number 86, of course. Um, are there any examples of uh, maybe people out there who you've encountered that have maybe been influences on you and had an impact on that style of leadership that you've taken on, would you say? I think so. I mean, ultimately, coming from a sporting background and, and through the, the company, through Squash Skills, we work with 13 former world number ones and, and the mm. world's best coaches. So I guess I'm constantly inspired through the journey that we're on in creating you know, world-class coaching videos and working with these guys. So I'm picking up lots of lots of different tips and, and tricks from you know, leaders in sport, ultimately, and, and understanding their approach. But then and also I've worked with a range of different business mentors and business coaches who are you know, also inspiring in their, in their own different ways. So, uh, yeah, definitely taken a, a range of major influences from a number of different backgrounds, um, for sure. Mm. And of course, um, there's a reason that we train within the sporting world because it's uh, to allow us to continue to hone our skills and to improve in that sense. So skills are, of course, something that can be developed throughout one's career and throughout one's life, I suppose. But is there a certain element um, of sort of a self-motivation, a drive, for example, maybe a certain talent that has to come from within, would you say, in the sporting world? And you see that within some of the greatest sportsmen out there. Absolutely. Uh, You're only going to get so far uh, if somebody... Is, is pushing you to do something. Ultimately, it's, it's got to come from uh, intr- an intrinsic thought process. There has to be that want, that desire. You know, my, my co-founder Peter Nicol was world number one for five years, and speaking to him about the pain and you know the pain that he went through during those training sessions. You know, there aren't many people that can go to that extreme, uh, that extreme place within their training. It takes a special kind of character to to go 
to where those world number ones went to. But I think that that transcends business. You know, it has to be yeah. an internal desire ultimately to to succeed. There's only so much, you know, external factors, carrot and carrot and stick. It will only get you so far. You know, how you have to, as a leader, uh, inspire people to be inspired themselves and to, to seek out a performance. Uh, so, yeah, there's only so much from an external factors or external factors that, that, that will only get people so far. And we often think of sports personalities, don't we, as role models. Do you think that, therefore, when it comes to leadership, that there's a certain emphasis on people who play sports and um, there's a pressure on them to really show their leadership going forward? I think people naturally aspire to be sportsmen and women in, 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 some, in some ways, or they, they look to sportsmen and women uh, as particularly uh, powerful people. You know, they are inspiring. They've been very single-minded and, and single-focused uh, on on the success within their sport. So I think they naturally create great leaders because people look to them, and they, you know, the, the rewards aren't necessarily there all the time within sport until you get to the very upper echelons. And, you know, certainly within squash, the financial rewards were uh, were not huge. It takes a certain type of individual to to try and carve out as a, out a career. In a, in a minority sport. Mm. So, yeah, I think um, there's, there's an inspiring role model, um, world-class world class athletes. And, uh, yeah, they, they definitely inspire, without doubt. And did you always imagine um, growing up, Jethro, that you would end up taking on your own form of leadership, not just necessarily being a squash player, but also in going into business within the profession as well? I'm not sure that it was always that. I think I've always, personal, I've always valued personal freedom. And you know, a, a pursuing a career in an individual sport like squash uh, naturally made sense there. But then going on, you know, in pursuing entrepreneurship and, and carving my own path seemed like a natural progression. So I guess the writing was almost always on the wall uh, as a as a squash player. Uh, so yeah, I think one one naturally fed fed the other, um, and I like you know I like ultimately being in charge of my own destiny. I think it's really important um, that anybody aspiring to be in a leadership position or anybody in any walk of life um, does wish to sort of take control of their own destiny, as you say there, it's hugely important. Um, But based upon all the experience that you've accumulated throughout your life, uh, Jethro, if you could go back, say, maybe five, ten years, is there anything that you would maybe tell the younger you to do differently going forward? Um. If I was, what would I say? Could you, sorry, could you just repeat the question? Yeah, of course. So if you could go back, say, maybe five, ten years, um, is there anything that you would maybe do differently going forward? I, if I were to go back five, ten years, I would, what would I do? Sorry. Um, tough question here. You put me on the spot. <laughs> um I think I would just be making sure that you're fully aligned with business partners and um, that can be tricky, a tricky relationship to navigate mm. at times. So, yeah, choosing who who I want to uh, to work with, uh, ensuring that the goals are aligned from, from day one, that's probably the easiest thing. Uh, ensuring that, you know, the people that you're working with in terms of board uh, all share the same vision, um, I think, 
you want to be a leader, you want to make sure that that you've got control and um, you know are able to chart the chart the course that you want to uh, want to go out on and make sure that the people that you're working closely with are, are on that journey with you. So that you know at times can lead to frustration. So uh, yeah, I think that for them. As an entrepreneur, that would be the best advice I could, could give myself if I were to rewind with make, making sure that the path is carved out and everybody's on the same page from day one. Yeah, it seems like sound advice and um, certainly as well, I think experience um, going through business is a very, very big teacher in that sense. And that's also true for those sports players out there as well, isn't it? Albeit you can train a great deal, but experience of going out there and doing the job, that is one of the greatest teachers that there is, essentially. Without doubt, you know, you can continue to learn every day, every week, something new happens in a teacher. Uh, Peter Nicol was my was my co-founder, and he used to say, "Learn to learn from everybody uh, on the squash court." And somebody would say, ask him a question: you know, "An average club player when he was world number one, did you know you were doing this with your feet, for example?" And he said, oh, "Really?" And this was when he was one of the world's best players, and he'd mm-hmm. take that knowledge or that insight from a, an average club player and make a small adjustment. And you know, it never stopped. You know, continue to to work with with multiple world number ones now and the, the times they're tweaking their grip or making small technical changes at the very end of their career, you know, always striving for perfection. So absolutely the same in business. You you never know what's what's around the corner. It's never evolving landscape. You know, you look at the situation we're in with COVID right now, mm. who would have predicted this coming? So you, you have to be on your toes. You have to be that you have to be constantly seeking out new knowledge and finding new new ways of doing things. So yeah, ultimately I don't think you you ever stop learning whether you're an athlete or a, or a business, business leader. I think you're absolutely right. And it is uh, certainly a real learning curve, this present uh, situation with COVID-19 for business leaders everywhere as they attempt to find their way through this. Um, and if we do think about um, the future in navigating this uh, current climate and then also beyond the pandemic as well, Jethro, do tell me what you envision yourself and the business achieving in that time and what your ambitions are for when COVID-19 is over. Ultimately, we're we're trying to adapt to the needs of our our customers at the moment. So, typically, they're used to being able to train on a squash court and, and play on the squash court and take their learnings from from our website and go and put it into practice. Obviously, squash courts are closed right now, so we've we've had to adapt quickly. We're providing home training workouts. We've started a squash skills training club where we give give people the ability to to uh, follow a program, be part of a community within a WhatsApp. WhatsApp group with other like-minded players. So we're adapting to players' capabilities and their needs within the current climate right now, you know, away, away from the squash courts and constantly trying to find innovative ways to, to train and producing relevant content. Um, as we emerge out of this, we will, you know, we'll, we'll see the, we see the importance of community and we'll sustain some of these initiatives uh, beyond beyond just the, the period where COVID-19 is, is, is prevalent. So, yeah, we'll be adapting. Um, we'll be developing new technology that helps people to learn from home and away from the court, but then we'll then, uh, we'll then develop that further to allow people to, to take that technology onto the court and hopefully then just further enhance that learning experience. So for us, it's all about improving the way that people learn a sport remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we're facing specific challenges, but I think what we learn during this period will, will then feed in 
and hopefully we'll go into expand and help more people improve and help more people become better at the, the sport that they, they love. I think it'll be really interesting to see how those hopes are materialiser for sure, Jethro. It seems like there's an awful lot of ambition there, even in spite of all of the uncertainty at the moment. And what I think would be great for the listeners as well is if in the next few months we start to see the fog lifting and start to see some of those plans come to fruition, we could perhaps even have you back on the air with us just to discuss um, how that's all going and how the business is getting on as well. Um, But for now, even though we are just about out of time on today's programme, I have to say it's been a thoroughly insightful and also a really enjoyable experience having you on the programme with us. thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today no problem at all thank you very much for having me i really enjoyed it jethro thanks ever so much that was jethro bins co-founder and director of squash skills coming up next on the program today i'll be handing over to jonathan white for his exclusive interview with sir andrew strauss sir andrew is the director of cricket for the england and wales cricket board and as a player strauss is one of only three england captains to have won the ashes both at home and away in australia he is also the England cricket captain with the second highest number of test wins in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively, 
relatively old is probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be that degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become avid cricket fans i know of some it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be yeah it was an incredible day wasn't it i mean i think in our vision like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 world cup i had this vision in my mind of lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no how it played out i've never seen anything i've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I... Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that yeah thanks um well look i mean we obviously had a very tough journey as a family first of all ruth being diagnosed ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer and for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary she'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life and I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change, 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.